Hey everyone, this is Prashant and I'll be your host for the VC10X podcast and today we have Vic Pascoe with us. Vic is the Managing General Partner at Energy Capital Ventures, the only early stage venture capital fund focused on ESG imperatives and digital transformation of the natural gas industry. In this episode, we talk about investing in natural gas, how to think about investing in the ESG space, how capital intensive are ESG startups, how to conduct due diligence for tech intensive startups, portfolio companies doing exciting work and a lot more. Without wasting any time, let's dive straight in. Hey Vic, so good to have you on the VC10X podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's my pleasure hosting you. I'm pretty excited uh, to talk about all things ESC and the carbon markets, natural gas. But to start things off, can we have your story and how you started investing? Because it's been quite a while that you've been investing. Yeah. Um, you know, I started investing in probably the most untraditional way. I did not follow the historical path to venture capital. Um, I didn't grow up in the right part of the country, didn't go to the right schools, didn't have the right degrees, didn't even start my career in anything that traditionally leads to venture capital. Um, of all things, I started as a trial lawyer, which there is not a well-worn path at all from trial work to venture capital. But I knew as a trial lawyer that technology was something that intrigued me. And what intrigued me about it were the people building technology and the people investing in them. Not only were they happy about what they were doing while I was going and fighting with people in, in the trial world and in courtrooms, they were actually building while I was seeming to tear things down as a lawyer. So um, I start, I left trial work and litigation and started my own law firm representing technology companies um, and investors in those companies. Built that up from no clients, no network and no work to enough for five lawyers and uh, myself, and then eventually got into general counsel roles um, as a um, in software companies. So then I started raising money. Um, I started managing cap tables. Um, I started advising people on on investing, and that kind of was the early fundamental um, basis of it. And then um, through one crazy M and A deal after another, I ended up in of all places, San Antonio, Texas. Um, where I was in a legal role, but then had uh, visibility to a lot of early stage technologies serving the financial services industry um, and was able to actually instigate um, and if not aggravate a large corporation into becoming an investor. So I started a venture fund there, built that up to $330 million, spent a lot of time in fintech and insure tech. And that was, that was how it all started. And that led me into companies like Coinbase, Personal Capital, um, you know, and more recently extend, clear cover, ID meet, those types. Yeah, that sounds pretty great. Uh, and like from there to now starting your own fund, uh, which is which is a pretty much ESG focused fund, more on the natural gas industry. Uh, so can you throw more light on that than how, how you went on this journey and why, why the specific, this sector specific fund is uh, focused on ESG and natural gas. So why this sector specific fund? Because you've been exposed to all these sorts of companies before. So why did you choose this? Sector? What gravitated me to financial services and my thesis around financial services and fintech and sure tech was really around making a difference for what was underserved. I thought the way I looked at it is that the financial services industry covering all insurance, wealth, um, banking, um, they only see the world through their traditional products. And because of the traditional products, they look through things. Uh, most of people across the globe were either underserved by their financial services, unserved, or overserved by financial services. So I looked at technology as the great equalizer that was there. So after spending 10, 20, 10, 15 years doing that, 
um, I decided to find my next challenge. Um, I went from the corporate VC world to the traditional VC world, where I spent a lot of time as a generalist, but still focused on fintech and insurtech. And then it was time to break out on my own and try something new. Um, I called a good friend of mine, my partner, one of my partners here in this in this fund, um, Rick Batone. Um, we'd been on boards together. We had served. We've traded deal flows. I got to know his firm really well. Um, and Rick's fund raised money from corporations, um, <laughs> invested for financial returns, but also provided strategic value back. So based on my corporate venture capital background, traditional venture capital round, we became, a, it was kind of a great mix. And Rick said, yep, we're going to do something. We're going to do a fund, but we're going to take a different approach. We really should do something in the energy space. Like, what are you talking about? That's not my background. And, you know, if you like fast forward and just step back a little bit and look, the bottom line is what the energy and utility industry is going through right now is the same thing financial services was going through 15, 20 years ago with regulatory burdens, regulatory challenges, aging infrastructure, customer satisfaction issues, new technologies that were going to enable or disrupt them, people questioning their business model, um, dealing with new market entrants and wondering about the future of their industry. So to me, at the broadest picture, it was the same thing. Um, and then there are a lot of the technology underpinnings also have a lot of mutual uh, commonalities to FinTech. Um, and so we started out um, talking, thanks to the relationships of my partners who've been 40-year investment bankers in the space, um, we were able to talk to a lot of these executives in these utility companies. And what we realized in talking to them is that a lot of people were focused on the electrification side and electrify the world as a way to decarbonize. And that's part of the story. The reality is it's not enough and it's not the only story. So very few people, in fact, no one um, at the time or even now is focusing purely on natural gas. So helping the natural gas industry um, decarbonize, but make sure and digitally transform, but also make sure the industry is here to provide clean, safe, reliable, cost-effective energy. So. Um, through the course and the relationship with my partners. I spent a lot of time with our limited partners, Avista, Black Hills, Nice Source, um, Spire, Southwest Gas, um, uh, National Fuel Gas, and then Eversource um, and Avista. And we realized that there was a need for this. And so that's how the fund came together. And we developed this unique thesis. Yeah, sounds incredible. And uh, talking specifically of the natural gas industry, what do you think are the biggest problem areas? Or, or in other words, what, what are the biggest opportunity areas, as we can put it, uh, in this space right now uh, that you're seeing solutions come up and that you're willing to invest in? So, um, you know, because we're the only fund out there that's purely and solely focused on the ESG imperatives and digital transformation of the natural gas industry, kind of makes us advocates or calls us to be advocates for innovation in green molecules. And we consider green molecules to be anything that helps the decarbonization of the natural gas industry and its customers. Um, but in addition to that unique thesis, we further differentiate ourselves with customized integration and a deep relationship and in integration with our strategic limited partners. And that enables us to provide a platform of innovation um, to bring the best of that startup ecosystem with the best of the utility industry with its scale to really make a difference. So that leads us into a lot of great areas um, with our, which are important to the utility companies from now in the next five years, but also the things that will be important to them for the next five to 50 years. That's there. You know, that gets us into things like carbon capture, utilization, sequestration, hydrogen, um, renewable natural gas, methane leak detection, and methane leak prevention, 
workforce safety, um, pro business process automation, um, and it just brings in, you know, a ton of great areas. Right, absolutely. And uh, uh, but one more major thing that we are seeing emerging, and this is this is a market that is still getting built. Like there are still things being figured out and regulations coming into place in many, many places. So talking about the carbon credits market, uh, which is like uh, a pretty new thing and uh, which is basically the model wherein uh, companies are will have to limit their ca carbon emissions up to a certain level. And beyond that, they will either need to purchase new credits uh, from the market uh, or like that's practically the only way left uh, to them. They, they will need to purchase these or they are incentivized to actually cut their emissions and m much below their allowed levels and then maybe sell those excess credits to other companies, right? So uh, how do you look at this carbon credit market shaping up and it impacting the natural gas? And I still think it's pretty nascent, if not naive, right? Because you have to start with the fundamentals of how are you measuring this in the first place? What is the baseline for the emissions? What technologies are you using and how are you coming up with those levels in the first place? Most people haven't even tackled that. Right, and then there's not a lot of clarity and visibility to the credit you're buying, um, and what you're really, what impact they are having on reducing um, their the true emissions that are out there, and then as well, some of these levels that folks and the regulators have set are kind of uninformed as to what's going to replace that energy source, right? If that energy source is not available, what do you in you, you know tell people they have to go to wind and solar? Well, what do you do when it's zero degrees out and the wind's not blowing and the sun's not out? What do you do when you can't power an industrial complex that produces the necessary food and supplies or transportation that's necessary for people to live, period, not even live comfortably, but just to live, right? So I think carbon credits will mature like everything else and we'll get greater clarity on what impact are they having? Um, because it really doesn't make a lot of sense to say, okay, everyone went to the World Economic Forum on private jets, but don't worry, they all bought carbon credits. Kind of disingenuous. Like, what are you really doing? What is that really like? And I think people have made the horrible mistake because of the media attention on it that people are equating natural gas to coal. And that's the wrong assessment. The reality is natural gas has more to de done more to decarbonize the world than any other... Um, energy source out there because it was natural gas that got people off coal and it's natural gas that provides like, transportation, fuel, food. It's the best, most efficient way to heat water and space. And so um, we have to look at these things, <laughs> excuse me, holistically. We also got to look at them globally, right? If China's going to burn more coal this year than you, the U.S. has burned in the last 10 years, what's truly having an impact on our environment? And why are we focusing on getting China off coal? And yes, China's doing a lot of things in nuclear, but natural gas and liquefied natural gas um, as a solution for them will solve more of the environmental considerations than anything. Right, absolutely. And uh, th there are always these global considerations into play because all these different geographies actually have different regulations into play and their own different preferences, their own different resources that they have in excess or, or lack of. So uh, while you're investing in this space, uh, how, how do these regulations come into play and uh, how that changes your investing strategy uh, if, when you're looking at different geographies? Yep. So we invest um, primarily in U.S., but we do have funds set aside to invest internationally. We are looking at several international deals currently. Um, 
you know, we also spend a lot of time with the regulators here because within the U.S. there's federal regulation and then state regulation. So we spend a lot of time with regulators. And so we look at the regulation around the infrastructure that's there, whether it's for hydrogen, renewable natural gas, low carbon intensity fuels. Um, we look at those things as whether they're going to be an enabler, an inhibitor, or just a net flat not effect. So we always have to look at those things. And different states now have different regulations on these things. And I think um, it's unfortunate because a lot of them are inconsistent and ill-informed. Um, and we need to just spend time with the regulators, helping them understand that. But we do look at regulation as part of our investing with the regulatory impact, you know, especially for leak detection. How, how accurate does leak detection need to be? How are we sending the baseline? What technologies are we using to measure that? And how will the regulators look at that? And if we're going to advocate for the parts per trillion, how are the regulators going to see that? And then how are the regulators then going to look at a mitigation strategy based on that? Right. And so it's um, regulation is a key part. And I think as an investor, if you don't appreciate and understand the regulatory environment you're investing in, um, you're in for uh, some sad returns. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. Uh, and uh, one more thing is about... Uh, like uh, there are multiple subsectors within within the broad ESG category, and uh, like there's natural gas. But uh, what are the subsectors within ESG that are mo that you are most excited by? That you see the most potential in terms of returns that you can generate uh, in terms of venture capital. Um, we're really excited about <laughs> excuse me hydrogen and hydrogen production. Um, we're really excited about what we're seeing renewable natural gas and uh, the optimization of anaerobic digesters as well as the optimization of electrolyzers when it comes for electrolysis for hydrogen. We're very, very excited about the next generation of digital technologies that are coming to not just the natural gas industry, but multiple industries in order that they can model their ESG strategies and their ESG transformation to understand and justify the decisions that they're making around everything from land use to wildlife preservation to greenhouse gas emissions to electric vehicle fleets, and it just kind of keeps going on from there to textiles, to sustainable farming. We're very, very excited about that space and how that's shaping up because we think that's going to have that generate the next great um, billion dollar companies. And um, those at the highest levels are there. And I think CCUS, their carbon capture utilization sequestration. Um, so the next generation of membranes around gas separation, around hydrogen, um, that also... Uh, um, enables hydrogen production, um, as well as renewable natural gas cleaning, if you will. Um, really excited about that. You know, I think even Larry Fink said it uh, probably much better than me. I know he said it much better than me, that the next, he said the next thousand billion dollar companies will come into the ESG space, will be in the ESG space. So um, we are very excited about um, the macro on it. We're also very excited about the particular niche we've carved out for ourselves. And we also think it's kind of interesting now that we've kind of been the advocates in there and going out with a strong message around um, ESG and digital transformation around natural gas that we're seeing other firms come into the space. Um, a lot of generalist firms, a lot of broad-based climate firms. Um, so it's great to um, have some folks come to the come to the party with us. Right, absolutely. And uh, you being an investor who has previously invested in uh, more, more of SaaS startups, more, more of software-centric, technology-centric uh, startups, and now uh, into the ESG space where it's more uh, more mechanical and more machinery is involved. Uh, so how do you differ between these two industries and investing in these two separate industries? Uh, how capital intensive is 
the ESG sector versus uh, the maybe the software sector? Uh, and does it where does the capital go? Does it go into more into research and development uh, or, or into scaling uh, the product that's already there? Yep. So when it comes to our <laughs> investment thesis with Enlease or portfolio construction, we kind of look at the two sides as you um, as you mentioned, right? You've got the ESG side, which we say has a lot to do with the membranes and the molecules. And then we've got the digital transformation side, which is more of the bits and bytes, which is all the traditional software. It's not a clear, bright line between the two, um, but that's kind of how we bucket things. Um, I think the problems we saw in Cleantech 1.0 and Cleantech 2.0 were that the venture capitalists just lost sight of the venture fundamentals, right? There's still a certain model you have to operate with venture to generate returns. So we look at those companies like Semvita Factory um, that can license their microbes um, that are doing things like biomining, biomanufacturing, um, and uh, creation of next generation in decarbonization of heavy industry. Those types of development of microbes and licensing of microbes have better margins than SaaS, right? And so you have to look for those types of models that, yes, they may consume a little more capital, um, but you have to look at that capital horizon, like where's the venture the right side? When is corporate venture the right side, uh, right time? When does project finance come into this? And then when does um, maybe even private equity that join into these things? And I think as a venture investor, so we invest at this, what we call seed plus to series A. So companies that have product, right? Product is built or almost built and they're either in market with uh, limited customers, limited amount of customers, or just about to get there. So that's where we like to invest. We like to write bigger checks than what people might normally write at that level um, in order to um, show commitment um, and get the ownership interest that we think is important for generating returns. So, um, you know, I think there are different types of firms that have different return models um, that will invest at different stages and, and do things a little differently. Um, and that's why I think it takes multiple types of investors. Uh, right, absolutely. And uh, one more thing. Like uh, since this is uh, an incredibly technical sector and not everyone is incredibly familiar with all the terms and all the technicalities. So uh, how do you conduct due diligence uh, in a space like this? So let's say a company comes up to you, but you're not very familiar with the solution they're building. So in that case, are you going to like rope in an expert and see if that product is viable or not? Or how do you manage that? So um, in a number of different ways. So one, the good thing about being part of a part of a firm is we have really great people on the team. We have some highly technical um, folks with very specific technical degrees actually on staff here. Scaling out from there, our LP base um, employs in innumerable amount of, because all our LPs are publicly traded utility companies. So they have experts in these fields that we get to tap into unlike anybody else, right? These are people that have been doing this their whole careers that have seen technologies come and go and they know the technologies and the requirements and the specs that's necessary for these things to scale. Um, and so we tap into our LB pay, LP base. Additionally, as the only firm dedicated to the space and being authentic in the space, we have great relationships um, with a lot of the other venture firms in the space and a lot of the um, technical uh, national labs in the space. So we also, in addition to those relationships, we have a whole coterie of strategic advisors um, that run the gamut from the largest consulting, technical consulting firm within the ESG uh, and climate space and energy space to the past undersecretary of science for the DOE. That gives us connectivity to 
tens of th- hundreds of thousands of scientists um, when, when the, <laughs> excuse me, when the time comes. So it doesn't matter if it's synthetic biology, membranes, or software, whether it's on the staff or strategic advisors or LPs for that broader network, we have innumerable amount of experts uh, in the space to confirm our thesis on and do additional due diligence. Yeah, yeah, that's a great approach, uh, involving LPs in the process. Uh, besides, uh, what, what are some exciting portfolio companies at, that are solving important problems in this space that you'd like to mention? Um, the first is Semvita Factory. So Semvita Factory is actually a platform company where it's a synthetic bodies, the company, as I mentioned, um, that's using their microbes to decarbonize heavy industry, right? So they're, you know, a lot of people are trying to force solutions with science. The reality is Mother Nature does a really good job consuming CO2 and changing it into new properties, into new things, right? So they're doing a sustainable aviation fuel project with United, which is going to have incredible impact um, on the environment. They're doing bioethylene with Oxy. So they're creating carbon negative plastic, utilizing their microbes. They're also in biomining, right? So they just ended a, a great relationship and partnership with um, Lithium America, um, which was just released yesterday, where um, the traditional mining processes tend to be very inefficient, ineffective, and not environmentally friendly. Um, and so, and they're they're only economically viable for a certain level or type of whether it's lithium or copper or nickel by using microbes to actually do the work of what other people are using acid for. You get to create. Um, you, you get the opportunity to mine things more environmentally sound, so you're not polluting the earth around it, and you're able to actually economically pull out um, using microbes from those rocks and pull out the mineral that you're looking for um, in ways that weren't previously cost-effective. So we like what they're doing there. And then on top of it all, um, they have a gold hydrogen project um, that they're doing with CHART and EXP, where they're actually taking their microbes, injecting them into what are spent wells or liabilities on these companies' balance sheets because they can't effectively mine for oil in them anymore. They're taking their microbes, putting them into these wells, and within a day, they're pulling out 100% clean hydrogen at an enormous scale um, that's going to enable that whole hydrogen economy. So um, we're really excited about that. And then within the natural gas space, what they're doing with their microbes around anaerobic digesters and biomethanation and actually taking straight flue gas um, and turning it into um, hydrogen and renewable natural gas is incredibly exciting. So really excited about what Sambita is doing there um, in that space. Yep, that's pretty incredible. And uh, with that, I would like to move uh, to the rapid fire round wherein I'll ask you five quick questions about the fund. Okay. And you have to give five quick answers. All right. All right, let's give it a go. So the first one is, uh, what are the sectors and regions you invest in? Um, ESG transforma- ESG and digital transformation as it relates to the natural gas industry. And across regions or is it region specific? Oh, uh, it's U.S., uh, North America, and internationally. 80% U.S., 20% international. Great. Uh, and what stage you typically invest in? C plus Series A. Okay. And what's the typical check size? Uh, we will write checks from $2 million up to $5 million. Uh, The latest checks we've been writing have been $4 million. Great. And uh, where can founders apply for funding? Um, easiest way to get in touch with me is, is actually the most effective way is by connecting through somebody. If we don't have an existing relationship, connect to me through a mutual connection. That's always the easiest way because it just helps um, validate things and prioritize things. I'm also on Twitter, 
and on LinkedIn, uh, where you can find me, and through the ECB EnergyCapitalVentures.com website. Yeah, pretty awesome. And uh, that partly answers our next question, which is about where can our listeners follow you? Um, it's at Victor Pascucci3 on Twitter, um, and Victor Pascucci third on LinkedIn, um, is where I spend a lot of time. Awesome. I'll make you to plug all those links in the show notes below. I love the work that you're doing, Vic, and happy investing. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. It's great talking with you. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.